welcome to the Free Cities podcast. My name is Timothy Allen, and this is the official podcast of the Free Cities Foundation. Welcome to episode number one of the Free Cities podcast. In this episode, I speak with Peter Young. Now, Peter is the managing director of the Free Cities Foundation. And in this conversation, we touch on many of the aspects of the foundation and its work. In particular, we talk about Austrian economics, about civilization and the importance of contracts. We also discuss education, the nature of protest, and we speak about liberty in our lifetime the conference that the Free Cities Foundation hosted in Prague a few weeks ago. We finish by talking about finance and money, in particular hard money in the form of Bitcoin since we recorded this podcast in El Salvador whilst we were both attending a Bitcoin conference. As many of you may know, El Salvador has been the first country in the world to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. And it's very interesting to us since it represents a parallel system in finance. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation. This will be the first of many over the coming months. I will be releasing a new episode every Friday. And we will try and speak to as many people as possible within the Free Cities movement and beyond. So sit back, relax and enjoy my conversation with Peter Young. of the Free Cities Foundation, which is a non-profit for promoting the, the ideas, the notions, the ethos behind Free Cities. Maybe you could tell me what your expertise would call Free City. So we, we define a free city as an autonomous territory that's adopting some kind of policy to support human freedom. And generally, we look at the spectrum of political systems that there are out there, and we look for small jurisdictions that are doing things that are outside of uh, the box. So El Salvador would be a good example of a jurisdiction that's doing things differently because they're innovating in one of the core areas that most governments tend to have in common, which is that they operate a fiat currency and that they fund themselves through bond issuance and those bonds are purchased by a central bank. This is like part of the uh, operating procedure of any standard government. And El Salvador is going outside of the box by adopting Bitcoin. Um, generally, when we say free city, we are talking about some kind of special jurisdiction within a nation state. So not a nation state itself, like El Salvador. Uh, we're talking about something a bit smaller. It's an important point to mention, actually, because when I talk to people about it, most people's idea when they hear what you're saying is that it's a country within a country. And that's most definitely not the case right now. And I, when I've spoken to people on this trip about this, because we've been to a few places where, and we'll talk about it later, where free cities are actually being built, um, they're very, um, they, they're very. But well, I want to make sure you understand that that's not the case. So, so 
expand on that a little bit. Like how, because the, the next question, of course, is how do you persuade a government to let you do something inside their country that isn't their rules, which is basically, you know, for want of a better expression, what a lot of free cities are doing. I think of it in a similar way to imagine that the US today didn't have 50 states. It just had a, a single federal government that controlled the whole country. Imagine you were trying to make the case to the federal government that they should have 50 states. Some people that were detractors from that would say, this is taking away from the power of the federal government in the US because you're devolving power to 50 separate jurisdictions and giving them certain powers that could otherwise sit within the central government. But people that supported that would say, actually, decentralization is a good thing. If you manage the local problems on a local level, then in the long run, that actually makes the country as a whole better off, more prosperous, um, more influential, better economy, better lives for the people that live there. And so I think about free cities in the same way. You're making a request to the central government that there should be a degree of devolved power. And that power can be anything from something more like a special economic zone uh, all the way through to Titus Gable's free private cities concept, which is basically that you have a single operator that is governing a city. It's operated, this is like a for-profit company, and there's a citizen's contract between every citizen and the private operator. So there's kind of a spectrum of autonomy, but the focus of the Free Cities Foundation is to encourage as many experiments, innovations and in governance as possible, because at bottom, what our goal is, is to offer people of the world more choice. We think that for historical reasons, the world has converged on a small number of governance models, and we think the world would be better if people could choose the kind of governance model uh, they live under and not be limited by the range of choices that are available today. Um, yeah, that's that was my big takeaway from um, spending the weekend at Liberty in Our Lifetime, which was the Free Cities, the Free City Orgs, um, Free City Foundations um, conference that was held in Prague a couple of weeks ago. And it was a, I have to say, it was a concept that whilst I probably did believe it deep down, I'd never actually taken the time to think about it. And that's that, um, because I was asking a lot of people about what their, their version of democracy was. That was one of the questions I was asking. And I think I asked over 40 speakers to sort of like talk about it. And the most consistent answer that came back was, um, my version of democracy is, let me choose the inverted commas democracy in which I want to live rather than the current system that we have, which is everyone votes and then probably 50% of the people are disenfranchised by the result. And um, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's something worth thinking about because democracy, the word, is like a pillar of Western civilization. And people don't even question it. And I had fallen into that category of just saying, yeah, democracy is good. Everyone has a vote. But the truth is, yeah, if you can't choose between democracies or if you can't choose between jurisdictions or if you can't choose between places, um, democracy doesn't really work for you unless you're part of the majority. And um, I think that's my takeaway from the conference was that's a founding principle within the free cities movement. Is that fair to say? Well, 
On the question of democracy, if you define it as putting power in the hands of the people, then there are different views out there on how best to achieve that. And the current prevailing view is that democracy equates to having a system whereby you have this kind of caretaker government that is in charge of a nation state, a jurisdiction, a territory for typically around five years. And this caretaker government is brought in through a one-person, one-vote electoral system. And there are typically two to three options for the group of people that you can put in charge. And people say that this is the best way of empowering people, that every five years the population goes and they choose one of these, one of these political parties and then that political party governs the country. And this is commonly accepted, um, but I don't think it really makes a lot of sense because when you look at how we actually operate within the real world, when we go out and we, we buy things in, in the shops, when we interact with people, actually the way that we make our decisions is not done in this way, where we all come together, we make, we make a kind of single decision where there's no skin in the game behind the vote that we place. Actually, the way in which we operate and exercise our freedom in the real world is by uh, using our free choice. So no one is forcing us to use an iPhone rather than an Android phone. Um, we can decide which of those options is best, is best for us. And we don't feel like we're being disadvantaged by the fact that we can't go to Apple once every five years and cast a vote as to what kind of software should be, you know, what kind of iOS update should be implemented. We just realize that we have the choice on the market of choosing one kind of phone or another. And I think jurisdiction should be like that as well. And that's actually the best way of giving people real democracy, real choice, is that you offer them a range of options and you say, uh, this is, these are the choices that, that are available to you. And I think that's the best way of increasing uh, the democratic choice of everyday people, giving them more choice in governance system. Then, by its nature, um, that move the movement you're talking about of people, I say people like you want that. You have to decentralize a power. You can't. It doesn't scale. It, 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 that idea doesn't scale. That's the whole point of it. Is that right? We're talking about um, centralized versus decentralized here, aren't we? So then my next question is then, going back to what we said before, how do you convince a centralized authority to allow decentralization? Because it's inherently destructive to the centralized power, isn't that correct? Not necessarily. If you look at the US, uh, the, re the US is the most powerful country in the world, and it's arguably achieved that because it's decentralized power in the form of the states, or never centralized power, rather. Um, so you can make the case that if you want to be successful like the US has been, arguably, in relative terms to other countries, then decentralization is a good thing. Wait a minute, before we go on then, explain to me why you think the US is a decentralized power. Because it has 50 states that have pretty wide-ranging powers um, to implement laws that the local population decide on. So... 
they have a quite wide-ranging powers that the individual individual states can adopt that the federal government and doesn't have a, a say in. And, okay, so you think that's a good model for this day or is, it, is that also, a, you know, is that working for you? I would say there are some things that are good, good about it, but there are lots of things that I would point to uh, and say could be drastically improved. Um, the reason that I'm in, interested in free cities is because I discovered the Austrian School of Economics in 2017, and that radically changed the way that I think about the world, about political questions, about questions of governance, about what can be regarded as legitimate use of uh, force, whether coercion is is a good thing or not, or can be a good thing. And I now use the lens of the Austrian School of Economics to analyze political systems, and I can look at the United States system and see lots of things about how that operates, which are not ideal um, from an Austrian perspective. But um, there are certainly things that have uh, been successful about it, and I would argue that decentralization of the states uh, has been is, is a good thing. We better break down Austrian economics then, and in, I suppose the best way to do that might be to juxtapose it against current economic theory, which is Keynesian economic theory. Is that correct? Uh, so, yeah, mainstream economic theory is kind of an amalgamation of a range of of schools, Keynesian being a predominant one, Keynesian uh, economics being a way that you would analyze macroeconomic phenomena such as business cycles and what the what the proposed antidote to those is within a debt-based monetary system. So when people say like, it's hard to know what the right word is, whether it's just mainstream macroeconomics, that's the term that I use, that's the term that Seyfedina Moose, who we both uh, have, have studied with, uh, uses. Um, but yeah, Austrian economics is based on the ideas of a particular tradition, starting with Karl Menger, uh, the most famous work of which is Principles of Economics that was published in 1871, and then following through through Eugen von Bumbawerk to uh, Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard. So come on then, what, give me... I know we did a 10-week course with Safety about Austrian economics, but boil it down for me, because I didn't listen as much as you. I know that. <laughs> boil it down for me. What are the core, um, the core principles of Austrian economics and, and why they're different from what, you would, what we would call mainstream economic theory now? The crucial insight of the Austrian School of Economics for me is the subjectivity theory of value. It's the idea that... The only way in which you can make sense of value, which is the fundamental subject matter of economics, is to look at it from a subjective perspective. So the only sense in which I can say that I value this cup of coffee more than this packet of crisps is that I would choose one of these things over the other. And so value is not something that is uh, objective and quantifiable, um, what the Austrians would call cardinal, but it is rather ordinal, which means that it is uh, something which is part of a hierarchy. So one thing is valued more than another, but there is no objective sense in which uh, something something uh, has a value. And this is a crucial distinction between mainstream economics and the Austrian school, that because the mainstream economics tends to assume that market prices determine 
value in some kind of objective sense. So when you look at GDP, for example, which is the metric that most mainstream economists will use to judge the health of an economy, they will tend to look at the the prices, the t some of the uh, prices of the, the finished goods and services that are sold in the economy, and they'll say that that is the GDP, and that's the amount of economic value. Does that, do, sorry to butt in, do they also say that you and me would both value this cup of coffee the same, but rather than in the, in the Austrian version, we would rate it dependent upon what else we're rating? Is that, is that what you're saying? Broadly, the, the assumption that is made when reasoning about economics is that this cup of coffee has its market market price. Um, so there wouldn't there's kind of you know nuances to that, but generally speaking, what most of mainstream macroeconomic thinking does is to try and uh, work out what the what the price of all the all the cups of coffee sold at this sold at this price point is, and then say that that represents a certain amount of monetary value. Is that uh, you know, and I'm 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 rapidly joining the dots here, probably completely wrong. But is that like a collectivist idea of economics versus an individualist idea, which would be the Austrian one? Could you could you broadly sort of itemize them like that? I'm not sure whether it's collectivist or whether it's individualist. Uh, I wouldn't say it's inherently collectivist, but what it does allow you to do is look at the total sum of goods and services that are produced in a given economy and then try to engineer uh, a greater or lesser number of those services to be produced for government intervention. I think, sorry, what I meant, what now I'm thinking about it, I meant modern economic theory deals everyone in a basket together and um, Austrian economics deals with the individual more. Is that fair to say? Yes, it is fair to say. If you look at the kinds of metrics that are used to reason about uh, economics. So for example, inflation. How do we measure what inflation is? Uh, you can you see inflation figures all over the, the media. Uh, recently, it's been a hot topic uh, in across the Western world because inflation figures have risen to, you know, eight, nine, ten percent in most Western Western economies. Now the way that that is measured is that Economists are taking the money prices of all the goods and services that are sold in the economy, all the final goods and services that are sold in the economy, and they're dividing that by a, uh, a deflator, which is the price of a given basket of goods and services. And that is kind of a collectivist concept because what the way that that basket of goods and services is compiled is that you're taking what you regard as an average household, and you're saying this is what an average household typically will tend to buy, and then you're working out what the cost of that basket is and, and dividing that by the total sum of the goods and services. So there's a kind of collectivist concept there in the inflation uh, deflator, the, um, the, the denominator of, the, uh, of, the, of, that, of that particular equation. And... Um, that, you know, Austrians, for, for reasons that are pro probably not best to go into in detail here, but Austrians would argue that that's actually um, not, not a valid concept. The whole idea of a basket of, of goods and services is um, kind of meaningless in a way, partly because it's based on a circular argument. The, what actually comes in and goes out from that basket, because it isn't a fixed basket, it changes over time. You know, that in itself is determined by the, the actual prices of those goods in the economy. So... When you're come kind of 
approximating what inflation is, the general assumption tends to be that you should have two independent variables on either side of the equation. And uh, the Austrians would argue that actually these are not independent. One is one is contingent upon upon the other. Um, so going back to your question, I would say that uh, the, the yeah there are, there are certain like more collectivist concepts in in mainstream uh, uh, mainstream economics. But at bottom, if you want to understand these things uh, coherently, in a logically coherent way. Uh, then I would argue that you need to apply the the principles of the Austrian school to to them. So, how does Austrian economics then fit in with the ethos behind the Free Cities Foundation? I would say, I mean, I haven't had this conversation in depth with with Titus. Um, Titus is our our founder, by the way. So he wrote the book Free Private Cities: Making Governments Compete for You, um, partly because he had worked in the mining sector worked as a corporate lawyer for uh, several decades and he had come to the conclusion that uh, the only way of improving the current governance model is to start create new jurisdictions from scratch rather than trying to uh, change the policies of existing systems from from within that was his main uh, main uh, rationale for for writing the book and for uh, establishing uh, what was then the Free Private Cities Foundation is now the Free Cities Foundation. Um, and his book references a lot of Austrian school economists, and I know that it has, uh, the school influences him uh, uh, quite a lot. But from my perspective, the Austrian school is is just, it's not a particular policy prescription, really. It's just a way of understanding um, the way that the world works. It's a way of reasoning logically about economic questions and uh, for my, my, my study of the Austrian school has brought me to the conclusion that um, giving people more choice, giving people um, a greater variety of jurisdictions to choose from is the best way of improving the well-being of, of society at large. And so that's been, my, my journey was, okay, going from quite a mainstream mindset on economic questions to the Austrian uh, perspective and then seeing, okay, this is the most practical way. Uh, the free cities model, the free private cities model is the most practical way of achieving that within existing legal government frameworks. Is this model of free cities, is this a new concept or is is it something that we've seen historically, you know, and, and feel free to go back a hundred thousand years, you know, to because I'm sure it's part. I th I'm sure this model is is a naturally occurring idea. Mm. So, so historically speaking, you know, when's it when's it existed prior? There are certain elements. So, what the first thing to say is that free cities isn't really a, a model. It's more of a concept for having a variety of governance models that are that aim at increasing human freedom. Uh, it's quite a broad term. It's like we call it an umbrella term that encompasses everything from special economic zones, seasteads, through to free private cities. Free private cities, I'd say that's you know that's more of a that's more of a model. Um, the thing that hasn't been fully tried before in all of its aspects historically is this idea of having a uh, a single uh, corporate owner of a piece of land with that owner determining what the policies are and that owner having a uh, 
a clear contract with every single citizen. That has not been tried in, uh, in its entirety at all throughout history. But you can look back at history and you can see examples of individual city-states that have adopted some models that, uh, the, that we advocate at the Free Cities Foundation. And you can see that you can make a judgment about how they've done. So you might point, for example, to the Hanseatic League in, in what is now like um, northern Germany and the League of States there that cooperated freely but had their own individual um, governance model um, that, uh, that determined local activities. When was that? Um, so this is going back about 500 years. And what was, what was the result of that? Uh, the result of that, I would argue, is um, the creation of a very prosperous uh, Germanic area in, in Northern Europe. The, one of the interesting things about Germany today compared to, say, the UK is that it's not a particularly centralized country still. If you uh, go to the UK, um, you've got London, which is a very important, large, large city. And about, what would it be? You know, 15% of the population live in London. Uh, but if you go to Germany, uh, there's not really this, this really important power center in Berlin. Like you've got Berlin, you've got Frankfurt, Hamburg, um, Stuttgart. There's a range of like really important cities that, that exist across the Germanic world. And part of that is um, due to the, the Hanseatic League and the tradition of having city-states that operated with a reasonable degree of autonomy. And the other one being the Italian city-states as well, um, going back even even earlier, um, you know, where modern banking was, was created and where the, um, you know, modern uh, merchant societies were, uh, you know, had their historical beginnings. It's a bit of a left-field question, this, and it's, but it just occurred to me, what does Vatican City count as in the grand scheme of free cities? Well, the Vatican City would is a is a nation state technically, um, and has you know the full autonomy of a of a state. Um, it's the reason why we don't class this or Liechtenstein or Monaco as um, free private cities is because they don't have a single corporate owner, and they don't have the ability to, um, like the individual citizens don't have a contract with the with the entity that governs the state not even in vatican city no there's no contract in the vatican city i'm not really i'm not really too uh i suppose it's an unwritten contract is it <laughs> faith i don't know um I, I i wasn't suggesting it was an important topic to discuss it just occurred to me then um so okay why is it why why is it important to in this in these models to have an owner the reason it's important to have an owner is that when you don't have ownership of property, that property doesn't tend to get maintained well. And people will, if there's common property, then people have the incentive to extract wealth uh, from that property in the short term rather than build up the capital of that property in the long term. So uh, by, giving thing, by giving ownership, clear ownership of property, um, you give some individual actor or group of actors the incentive to improve that property 
And I would argue that that's how societal progress happens. Individual people are taking ownership of property and have the incentive to use that property to serve other people and in the process improve that property. What about contracts then with, with, with you know, to, to be part of a free city or a free jurisdiction? Why do you think it's important to have a contract with the, what do you call it, the owner of the, no, what do you call the, the, the body in charge of a free in, in the case of free private cities, it's, uh, we call it an operator, a city operator, which basically you think about it like a, a, private, a private company or like the owner of Westfield Shopping Centre or the owner of a apartment complex, um, just with more autonomy. So, so why, why have a contract then? Why not just sell the property and have them run it as a, a normal, you know, just like... Well, I, I assume actually that the shops at the shopping centre have a contract with the, the people that own. Is that right? Yeah, mm. they don't own the shops though; they lease them, though, don't they? Uh, in which, in which, context? in a shopping centre, for example. Yeah. So generally, there would be like a single owner of the shopping centre that would then lease out the the properties. Right, but the free cities is different, <laughs> isn't it? Free cities is an operator, but everyone owns the property individually themselves. No. There's a single operator, and that operator determines... I mean, there, there are different models within this. Actually, this is an interesting case study, because in Prospera, which we've just visited, there is the individual people can come in and buy property. We saw that uh, Juno Residences Tower uh, going up, and individual uh, companies or people can come in and buy those apartments. Whereas in Morazan, an inland development that we didn't get a chance to visit... They have a model where it's only possible to rent from the from the property owner. So we were talking about um, why contracts important. Yeah, I'm I'm assuming that uh, they add the element of uh, low time preference to a property, a way of life. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So to kind of go back to the Austrian school terminology, there's this concept of high time preference there are these concepts of high time preference and low time preference and high time preference means that you think a lot about the immediate uh, consequences of what you're doing but not very much about the long-term consequences and uh, low time preference is the opposite you think about the long term and when you are in the wilderness and there is not much ability for you to establish uh, long-term plans you just need to eat you just need to ensure that you're warm at night you just need to ensure that you're not going to get eaten by predators you live a generally quite high time preference life but when you have a certain area of land that you can cultivate and make your own you can build on you can defend that you know is going to be there for the long term that's when you can start to make long-term plans and arguably that is what we mean by civilization we we can civilize we can improve the way that society functions we can improve our quality of life when we are able to lower our time preference but that comes with ownership of property and the ability and systems that allow us to make long-term plans and this is why contracts are important because contracts give people a guarantee of what the rules are going to be regarding the manner in which they they uh, adapt and improve their property. 
So just to give a really simple example, uh, we're currently in a, an apartment block in San Salvador. Um, so if I, if I buy this apartment, there are certain things that I will... So if I buy this apartment, there are certain kinds of rule that I can reasonably assume will remain for a given amount of time, like what the service charge is. Maybe there are rules about what the service charge isn't, isn't going to be. But there are certain rules um, around how this apartment block can be used that are not dictated by the, not determined by the owner of the apartment block. Stuff like, if I choose to build a life in this apartment block, how much of my income is going to be taken in tax? That's something that could be changed through a general election. So I could move into this apartment block on the understanding that I'm going to build a life here with me and my family, that there's going to be schooling provided by the state, that there's going to be a certain amount of tax I'm going to have to pay every year, that there's going to be, I don't know, like certain amenities available. But um, lots of those things can, can change. So a general election uh, could result in that level of income tax going up by another 20%, say. And then that dramatically changes the calculus of uh, how much, how, how beneficial it is for me to build a life here. Because if I've built a life here on the assumption that I'm going to have a certain amount of income available and that certainly suddenly drops, then that's going to determine my quality of life. And th what contracts do is they, they say like... <coughs> This is a place that you can move into and these are the guarantees on what the basic rules are going to be. So you can do things like set what the you know, tax or the service charge are going to be for a given period of time and people can decide whether or not that's worth it for them or whether it, or whether it isn't, uh, whether it's worth it for them or whether it isn't. And um, just establishing what the rules are allows people to make long-term plans and to lower their time preference and... Uh, develop, build lives that are that are beneficial for the future. So, is there is there a tool, a version of this in existence historically or now, where such a place has existed? Not with this kind of uh, contract contract based model between the citizens and the and the the government. This is, is that this because is a new thing? Is that because law is relatively? new and flexible or historically speaking i mean why is it that no one's come up with this idea before why is it no, that no one has created like somewhere like in italy um siena and mm. i've been a few times a very old bank there i think there's there's is you know the old banking systems mm. arose out of there didn't they they were pretty much cities based around those kind of concepts weren't they so why why was why was the idea of contracts not something that people ever thought about it well contracts have existed in commercial life for uh millennia i mean if you go back to like ancient greece and writings of the ancient greeks there's evidence of contracts there it's not it's not contracts it's themselves are new but the idea of having uh, a contract between the governing entity and the citizen this is i suppose the innovation of the free private cities idea and so what we're, what we're saying is that we, we just want to take this aspect of commercial life that already exists and apply it to a new realm, which is the realm of living together, the realm of uh, uh, creating voluntary societies. 
So there are various bits of this model, this free cities model that have been trialed in the past. Uh, we've had small city-states working and cooperating freely. Um, we've had very lean kinds of government, like I would point to city-states like Hong Kong and Singapore as being good examples of that. We've had individual contracts that have existed in the commercial sphere um, and in the civil sphere for, for millennia. What we're just doing is looking at that system, those systems that have existed, and proposing that we apply them to um, a new a new field, which is the field of governance. From I mean, one thing in my own personal experience that that a, a problem that that would solve would be the problem of um, something that we I live out in the countryside, out and we've got a lovely view, and not, not many people live around where where you live, and in the back of your mind is always the notion that one day just over there someone might build something that you don't like and it's t they're totally within their rights to do that because it's their land and mm. you know you're you're i suppose in free cities part of the contract is mitigates things like that as well does it yeah exactly that's a really good point because there has to be some way of determining whether or not people can build things on their land that obstructs the view of other people or in some way impacts other people, whether it's sunlight or just pure aesthetics of the object. And within our current system, the central government kind of sets a general policy and uh, there's like local planning permission processes that, that determine whether or not something can be built. But there's, no, uh, there's, there's not very much individual citizen choice that goes into that. Whereas with like Prospera that we've just visited, for example, one of the things that they're experimenting with is introducing 3D property rights. So rather than just owning the, the land itself on the ground, you can also uh, purchase land, like purchase space in the air. So if you are someone that really values the view that you have, you can decide that you're going to purchase the actual land, the, the uh, quantity of space above the land, however however far up you want to build. And if you say that I really value the view so much that I don't want any development to happen uh, around me, then you have the option to procure the space that surrounds your your apartment complex or the building. I like that idea a lot. And I, I would imagine, compared to the current system, it's much more efficient. Because, like you say, if you in the current system, if you live in a house and someone decides to build something in front of you, you basically have to appeal to them not to. Yeah. And then you get in this toing and froing, which is a complete, it could last for years. Whereas in the free cities model, you know what you can and can't do. And there's, exactly. there's nothing, yeah. And in fact, it's not, isn't it true that in Prospera, it's all digitized as well, which makes it even more efficient. So it, it's literally that you can, you can see exactly what you can and can't do. Mm then you can make a, an informed decision and then you can either join that system or not. I was chatting to them in Prosper about this and I, I think written into their, it's, well, it's not a constitution, isn't it? Written into their governance model, there's a zoning system, isn't there? Mm. And taller buildings have to exist away from the beachfront area, for example, mm. in, in I think in a, in a zoned way. Mm. Um, and um, it's because they've just, you know, as we saw, they've started building a 13-story tower block mm. for accommodation, but it's kind of tucked into the side of the hill. 
And yeah. um, they told me they can, if you want to say buy an apartment there, they can guarantee your view. Yeah. Which is, yeah. I mean, it's worth money. It is. For sure. And And I like the way that you can even, in some governance systems, you can even value that view specifically by buying the air in front of it all the way down to the sea, say, for example, yeah. or whatever, the, the, the 3D space. That does make a lot of sense to me because that's basically what you're doing or what you are wanting to do by stopping someone else building in front of you. You're basically saying to them, I value the view more than I value you as my neighbor. Mm. But if you can't express that, by putting some getting skin in the game, yeah. Then it's uh, yeah. The system doesn't. It's it's very inefficient. Yeah. The great thing about the Prosper system is that the rules regarding the the views, the use of space, the obstruction of uh, people's lines of sight. These are specified and made clear before you move in. So when you acquire a property you know what the rules are going to be and there's a clear system for determining what development can happen around you. There's n it's not, you know, based on uh, a one-size-fits-all um, prescriptive system that, that covers an entire country. It can be done locally based on local needs and that's one of the, the things that I think is really um, encouraging about the Prosper model. As I said earlier, we've, we've, we've been at um, the Free Cities Conference in Prague a liberty in our lifetime and um, what I noticed about the group of people that came to Prague to sort of com converge for that uh, conference was how diverse a group of people it was and they seem to have come from three main areas of society, society no three main areas of ideas one of them being the governance one which we've just talked about there Another being the sort of financial side and then another one being, I suppose, the educational side. So what could you tell me about the Free Cities um, Foundation's ideas around those other parallel ways of doing things, particularly education and, and finance? Do they have an opinion or is it just give me a choice? Yeah, it's really just give me a choice. There's not... We don't go around saying this is what we think the best education model is or the best financial model is, although individually, uh, you know, our team definitely have views on those questions, not always the same views. But the, the reason we chose that, that theme for this year's conference, Parallel Structures for Progress, is that we think that the best way of achieving positive change in the world is to not go out on the streets and protest or... Uh, engage in political lobbying or try and alter very large entrenched political systems from within, but it's instead to do the hard work of building something new, um, starting off at a small scale and offering it to people so that they can opt in voluntarily. That's why we chose that theme, Parallel Structures for Progress, because we want people to focus on developing uh, education structures that aren't forcing people that are currently involved in state schooling systems to uh, to join but they're saying here's an additional option and if those options that people are developing are successful then they will grow in size and grow in influence and that could lead to uh you know certain 
differing ideas becoming dominant, or it could just lead to a plethora of different systems all operating harmoniously. Um, we don't have a view on what, what the outcome should be, but we, we just say that within the current system, it's, it's very hard to bring about change. And even if you do bring about change, you're presupposing that the change that you, you think uh, is needed is right for millions of other people. And that might not necessarily be the case. Um, in, in on the uh, subject of parallel education systems in particular, because I've, I've, I've dipped my toes in a few of them. We've homeschooled for a year. We traveled for a year with our family. And, you know, um, what I was amazed to learn at Liberty in our lifetime was that there are, there is a community of, of Swedes living in Prague who mm. have, they're like educational refugees. Um, it surprised me to find out that Sweden as a country do not allow homeschooling. It's illegal. Hmm. And so there are families living in Prague who've just had to move because they wanted to homeschool their families. That's fascinating because I've always thought of Sweden as being a very open and, and I suppose, progressive society, let's say. Hmm. Um, do you have a, a, any particular views on, on education? You don't have any children yet, so I suppose that's a hard thing to say. My my views on the education system are mainly shaped by my experiences in the UK. What I what I see getting worse is is discipline in schools, and I think this is partly uh, the result of teachers not having power to exclude students that are misbehaving. And the worst that can happen is that the the, the students are sent to another school, and then they become the second school's problem, and they just get moved and moved and moved until they become a problem. And this is something that's very costly for society to have these disruptive students move from place to place to place. But these costs aren't really imposed on the parents. So there's not really an incentive for the student, for the for the parents to, to say, uh, you really need to change your ideas. Because at the end of the day, if the parents aren't that bothered and they're not that motivated, they don't have to bear the costs of what their children are doing in school. But wait a minute, what about, well, two things. One, what if the child doesn't have any parents, which is often the case, or yeah. not often, but it's the case. And the other thing is, okay, then, well, what do you do with a disruptive kid in a school? What's the answer? You have to think about why kids are disruptive. Um, and I would argue that kids didn't used to be as disruptive as they are now. If you look back at history just talk to your grandparents or your parents and you find out what was the worst thing that happened in your school. What was the, like the, the kid that misbehaved the worst in your school, what did they do? And back in, back in their day, it would be stuff like, oh, you know, they, they skipped class and went and had a cigarette or something. And flicked they came a rubber back at someone. And they yeah, flicked a rubber or whatever. But now it's like, you know, they brought in a knife. Um, they, they like really like verbally abused their, their teachers. They physically assaulted their teachers. Um, my mom used to work as a teacher and she had that happen to her. Um, the standard of, of behavior is getting, is getting worse and worse. Okay, then. And well, let's, let's drill it down into that. Why is that, do you think? My view is that it's a product of uh, decades of 
policies that have fundamentally changed the social system in in Britain. Okay. I'm talking about Britain now because this is the context I. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, like, well, I mean, yeah, arguably, it's it's important to to say that because we've just come from a school in El Salvador. Yeah. And everyone seemed to be very well behaved, didn't they? They did. Yeah. Everyone was polite and nice, and um, you know, maybe we got them on a good day, but. Um, they didn't have a, a body scanner at the door, no. and I didn't notice anyone walking around looking threatening. Mm. Um, but but yeah, go on. So so, is this too big a question to answer right now? Is it? Are we about to go off on a? It's not a question that I've got like deep expertise in, uh, so I'm I'm hesitant to say too much. But if you're asking me for my personal like view on what what concerns me about education systems, like. At bottom, it's the incentive. It's the incentives that that exist that are determining the quality of education that, that children are receiving. Incentives for who? Incentives for the parents. If the parents actually have to pay for the education of their children, then they have more of a vested interest in making and turning that into something that's going to be really valuable for the children's future. And for some children, like going to school to, you know, through through school, through A-levels, through to university, that's not going to be the right thing. There are some, there are other ways of learning. Like look at what Daniel Prince's children are doing. They're not going through the conventional schooling uh, system. And that might actually end up being, it might be more expensive in certain ways. It might be cheaper. But what it causes parents to do is focus on what is it that I'm actually trying to get my get my children to to learn so they're prepared for going out into the world and living a good life and at the moment the default is you just send your pair, your children to school between the ages of 5 and 16 or 18 and they go through a system with everyone else where they're taught the same thing broadly they have a few options in secondary school as to what they what they specialize in but that might not be the right system but if you offer that to everyone and say you have to pay for this this system um, and you, you know you get it free at the point of delivery, but you're paying it all through your taxes, then that becomes just the default system. And then you have additional incentive problems with children that are badly behaved. Like this, this doesn't um, impact on the parents. It doesn't impose the cost on the parents. So the parents have less of an incentive to really um, discipline their children and ensure that they're behaving well in school. But, okay, so <clears throat> the kind of the free city model of education then is lots and lots of private schools offering different curricula, which is kind of the system we have, as well as the state-run one. The, the fact of the matter is, though, and I know this firsthand, is private school in the UK is super expensive. Yeah. You know, I've got three kids, right? So if I wanted to send my kids to private school, um, the average private school is about 20 grand a year. So that's 60 grand a year before I've even got out of bed every morning mm. for like eight years. That's that's something that it's only a certain echelon of society that can achieve that. So who's to say the free cities model isn't going to go the same way? It's like there's there's the state world where everything is not very well offered um, and then you've got the free cities, but they're all too inexpensive. A little bit like you could say Monte Carlo is now, mm. or um, maybe Dubai in, in a sense, you know. Well, 
the first thing is I'm, I'm not an expert in the private schooling system in the UK, so I don't want to say too much about it. But what you generally find in these systems, like education system in, in, in the developed countries, is that when you look into them, they, they appear like they're free market because they're you know, a private school, so they can do what they want. Whereas in fact, they, they, there are lots of regulations and lots of things that increase the prices to higher than what they would otherwise be because you have to com- comply with all kinds of regulations when you're looking after the children. So I would suspect that actually those prices would come down for just the experience that you're providing in a private school in, in the UK um, if, it, if it wasn't a purely free, free city environment. But I would also say that, yeah, that private school doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be what we think about in in the UK, when when you say private school, it can be a, it can. I mean, look at China for example. Like the the private education sector in China is massive. They have uh, most students go to a, a state school, and then they also go to training schools as well, Peishun, uh, Zhongxin, or something like that. They they call that in Chinese, um, and uh, these are like just just after school clubs where you go where you have a private tutor and they're not that expensive most students will um in cities will have some kind of like additional tuition and that that's an alternative model it doesn't have to be a boarding school expensive hockey fields and uh all of these like this premium experience that you get if you send your kids to Eton or Harrow in in the UK um it could be that that that's another version of private education and you just make it affordable by having a relatively free market and uh, allowing people to opt into additional systems. So are you saying then that, um, so what you're saying is <laughs> China is good. <laughs> what I'm saying is I unequivocally support the, Ch- <laughs> the Chinese regime. So is, so go on, what, what, you know, you're you are alluding to the fact that China has a a, a privatized education model that could work for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, China's not not like a, a deeply communist country in the way that many people think it is. Uh, there are certain aspects of the economy that operate in a fairly free market way. Like private education would be would be one example. And according to what you know, because you've lived in China for ten years, wasn't it? Mm. Is is it doing? Is it working for them? I would say it is working. Is working for them. I, like I'm pretty inspired by the younger generation of Chinese um, students that are coming through the system. Uh, there's definitely lots of things about it that maybe aren't ideal, but you know they work very long hours. They they're under a lot of stress. And I wouldn't be surprised if this isn't the optimal way of of uh, educating children. But my general sense is that they come out of it with a with very good academic achievement, and their level of English is getting better and better. I think the next, you know, in to say ten twenty years, uh, China is going to be much more of a easy place to go about as a pure English speaker than it is today. Well, that's if you can get in there, though. Obviously, if your social credit score is not high enough, you may not be allowed in. But that's a whole other conversation. Okay, well let's let's go from educational governance models then to financial governance models because we're sitting in the middle of a finance a new financial governance model right now, and um, 
what I like, I liked what you were saying earlier about um, the free cities or realizing that changing things from within is is actually possibly not the correct way of doing it because that's something I I discovered. I, I came to that conclusion myself and a long time ago when I was a journalist. I covered a lot uh, before I was a journalist. Before I worked for a national newspaper, I was, you know, I was, you know, I suppose part of, kind of part of a, the protest movement. I was always interested in protesting things. Mm. Um, then I became a photographer at a national newspaper and I had to cover a lot of protests. And over the years, I started to realize they did nothing. And I could, okay. I distinctly remember, for example, um, a number of very, large and crazy protests that happened in London. Um, like the, you know, Reclaim the Streets was one of them, when literally the um, stock exchange was stormed and people were fight traders were fighting protesters on the escalators and they were throwing paper everywhere. And I was in there and I was thinking, this is crazy. This is, you know, this is amazing what's going on here. And literally the next morning I was sent down to sort of photograph the clear, the clear up and it was all gone and it was all it was pasted over already and it had no effect in the slightest and over the years that you start realizing that appealing to authority to protest something really isn't a very good way of protesting because you're basically asking the people in charge to change the rules to favor you rather than them on the whole and that's never worked i mean you know that as a parent <laughs> you know the only time you really should be protesting to authorities when you're a kid and it often doesn't work <laughs> but what i like about what the free cities um, foundation says and also because i'm a bitcoiner this is the defining tenant of of being a bitcoiner is is not protesting the current financial system but opting into a parallel one and that i've come to understand is the is what a protest is it's opting into a parallel system that's the ultimate protest that's why people call bitcoin a protest um, amongst many other things um, and we're in a country now where potentially people are opting into it um, i'm not so sure how many people are opting into it for those reasons um, but certainly Bitcoin was created as a vehicle to opt out of the current system, which I think everyone understands is unfair. I think you can't look at the current financial system and decide, yes, someone being able to create the money is fair. That, 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 that's not fair when you're five years old in the playground. That's not fair when you're 50 years old. And you certainly know not to trust the people who are creating the money. And as a result, this is why, you know, America can invade any country at once because it has an unlimited war chest. And, you know, that's why a, a lot of the things in the world that happen, happen because the people closest to the money printer or the money printer themselves make the decisions. Hmm. And I think actually... If philosophically speaking, I don't know what the derivation of the word protest is, but it's almost always implied that you're protesting to an authority, doesn't it? Mm. But actually, that's not a very, historically it's shown, that's not a very good way to do it. I mean, the biggest protest in the history of the UK, I think, was the protest against the Iraq war. Yeah. 
you know, and I think the second biggest protest, this is from my time as a journalist in London, was, believe it or not, the Countryside Alliance protest. Do you remember when they banned fox hunting? Oh, yeah. The Labour government banned fox hunting, which was obviously a dig at the Conservatives. And and so they had a, they had a million, man, million person march in London then as well. And that's still, in, you know, nothing changed yeah. there. So I think, you know, there are po- probably examples good examples of protesting to authority working. But if you actually look back, I bet you there's an ulterior motive there by the by the mm. powers that be. But opting out or opting in, is another way of putting it, is a real protest. And Bitcoin really is that. Mm. I mean, it's such a beautiful protest as well. You don't need permission to, pro- to, to opt in. You just do it and you are... In the nature of you opting in, you are in disempowering the thing that you are protesting against. And I think that's just a beautiful concept. In reality, it feels great. And I love doing it. It's part of the reason why I'm such a strongly convicted Bitcoiner. Um, so is is Bitcoin a, an important part of the Free Cities Foundation's principles or... Um, is that something you want other people to make their own choice over as well? We want people to make their own choice over that. There's no official position on which particular kind of money is the right money that the foundation takes. Uh, we don't say we think everyone should use Bitcoin. We think everyone should use gold. We think that we should continue using government currency. Um Ultimately, what we're there to do is to create systems that offer people more choice so they can decide that for themselves. Uh, If you're asking me on a personal level, which monetary technologies, which innovations excite me most, then I would say that, again, coming back to the Austrian economics perspective that I've been developing over the past few years, then um, I am excited by, by Bitcoin because it offers the ability for people to trade freely peer to peer um, it also offers for the first time a mathematically fixed monetary policy um, whereby there doesn't have to be a single issuer of the money. And I think that's a hugely important thing. Um, arguably, gold pro- provides this as well. When gold was the um, monetary standard internationally, there was no single monopoly issuer of gold. But now we have the saleability like gold saleability across time so gold's ability to store value uh, across across decades with um the saleability across across space of uh government uh electronic money uh in one single immutable package in the form of bitcoin uh, it's something that you know that the supply is going to be fixed over over time or at least the production schedule is going to be uh fixed over time so you can predict what the supply is going to be and make judgments about what the value of the, the currency is going to be over time based on based on that supply. But you can also transact uh, seamlessly either uh, on chain uh, or via secondary layers such as the, the Lightning Network. So on a personal level, that is certainly the particular monetary structure that that excites me. And why we have such um, so many people within the Bitcoin community that are coming to the Free Cities movement, because I think our values are, are very much uh, aligned. Well, for sure. And one thing that occurred to me just now was 
when you were talking about um, free cities having contracts which allow you to have low time preference. Yeah. Um, that's essentially what happens with Bitcoin, except your the contract is the software. You 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 either have the software or you don't. You either use the Bitcoin software or you don't. And whilst it's a decentralized governance model, you know you can change it. Um, it's very difficult because um, there are so many players involved, and there are so many people who are invested in the notion that this is a long term governance proposal, let's say, of, of the monetary policy, that we all assume that it won't change in any dramatic shape or form. And as a result, we one of the main tenets of Bitcoin being the, you know, the hard cap of 21 million. Yes, it does allow you to plan for the future. You know what the inflationary um, model is and you know that how many how much your money can be diluted into the future mm. which um, makes it hugely important for saving mm. um, and I yeah I would ha I would posit as an outsider looking in that it's a, a hugely important part of the free cities model because if 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 free cities are amongst other things trying to help implement long-term thinking then Bitcoin's the currency for free cities because Bitcoin is the long-term thinking currency. There's no pressure um, within the, the Bitcoin network to spend. There's no in the, the incentives can be there to spend, but there's nothing saying to you, look, if you don't spend now, then in the future you'll have less value for that same amount of Bitcoin. It's the opposite is true. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think that's what that's one of the main understandings that people who look deeply into Bitcoin get sooner or later that it allows long-term thinking and that's an antidote to to the current system we live in which incentivizes short-term thinking I think in an inflationary system you're literally incentivized to spend your money as quickly as possible if you take it to the extreme you know the Weimar Republic you literally spend your money on goods the moment you get paid and then hold the goods. Mm. Uh, you know, in the current system we're in, right, we're running at 10% inflation, which is still a lot. Everyone's thinking, I don't want my money in the bank. What am I going to put it in? What am I going to do with it? And, and nobody's saving. No one's thinking of the future. Mm. And, and I think that's, you know, a core tenant of, of the Bitcoin movement. And I think also, from what I've seen of the Free Cities movement, it's part of the core structure of those ideas as well yeah that's certainly one important aspect of having hard money that it takes people off this treadmill that so many people so many of us feel that we we live on where we have to just keep moving just in order to stand still and when you have a money where there is a monopoly issuer and that monopoly issuer is able to spend newly created money into the economy that, has to, that value that they're extracting from the private sector, from private individuals, has to come from, from somewhere. And it comes in the form of the additional work we have to do just to be able to fund those activities. So there's definitely an aspect of hard money where there isn't this monopoly issuer that can spend, that can spend new money into the economy. That certainly allows people to think further into the future, make longer-term plans, because they're not having to... to uh, provide 
parts of the fruits of their labor to to some, someone else who isn't acquiring those fruits through a voluntary mechanism is they're acquiring acquiring those fruits through a a coercive mechanism they're forcing people to use the currency and uh and pass on their value in that manner i mean so that's one one important aspect another important aspect is that free cities need to have a mechanism for trading with each other an important thing to acknowledge is that no matter how free a given jurisdiction is, it's not going to be very well off if it doesn't trade freely with the rest of the world because there is such a thing as economies of scale and we're all better off when we cooperate peacefully and trade and uh, have productive division of labor. So the question is, if you have a world, the, the world that we're trying to create is a world where there are you know, in say the short term, call it, you know, eight to 10 years, we, we want to see dozens of these free cities that are operating autonomously, but trading peacefully uh, across the world. So the question becomes, how is that going to happen? Are they all going to be using the US dollar? Are they going to be using gold? Are they going to be or are they going to be using something like Bitcoin, which is a decentralized monetary network that no individual free city would control but any individual person, business, or city operator can choose voluntarily to, 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 uh, to use to trade. Um, I, I personally think that it, it's most likely that, that they will opt for that kind of network. Well, I mean, we're in a country right now that's literally done that. I mean, you, you could think of El Salvador as being a, a new node in the, in the network. They, ha they, they, adopted the US dollar when was it they adopted the US dollar about 20 years ago yeah so which which is, sounds great until you realize then that US policy finance and economic policy completely dictates what goes on here mm. um, and they've made the choice or you know the government here made the choice to make Bitcoin legal tenders um, so arguably yeah that's that's it happening in practice um, we were talking, um, when we first started, we were talking about what's going on in, um, here right now in El Salvador and whether we think it's a, a successful experiment. Uh, you know, I've, I have mixed feelings about it in, personally. When I first came here, it was just so exciting to be spending Bitcoin all the time because that's always, that's been the dream for many years is to be able to spend Bitcoin seamlessly and easily and cheaply and free, uh, which we have now, you know, in the last few years, the Lightning Network, which is a layer two solution has been implemented onto Bitcoin. So for small transactions, coffees up to sort of two or three hundred dollars, you can you can transact for free and very easily and anyone can as long as they have a smartphone. But it's when you get beyond that here, you do notice that um, Deep down, I think people need an incentive to switch currencies or to switch to a new monetary network. Um, in our case, many of us, we have an ideological reason for switching. But um, I think mass adoption probably won't happen on ideological reasons. I think it will just happen on convenience reasons. And for me, Bitcoin is a convenient um, way of transacting. Um, especially if you're traveling to foreign countries, which doesn't necessarily help your average El Salvadorian here. Um, but add to that the, the problem that 
you find here is that the government issued wallet called Chivo wallet is has a terrible user experience um, it's very buggy it's 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 just terrible there are so many instances of people's money not appearing not uh, getting money out the in ATM and you know nothing coming out or the wrong amount coming out and you know and I can totally understand if I was an El Salvadorian and I as I would if I made a PayPal payment to you and it didn't go through, I'd really be like, well, only once. If it happens again, I'm not doing it. But in here you hear stories like this all the time. Um, and it's the, unfortunately the government-issued wallet. It's not the wallets that we use because Bitcoin's an open network. Anyone can create some software to interact with the network. Um, so I, I, as you know, going back to our original conversation about it, is, um, is El Salvador's bet on Bitcoin going to pay off do you think it's it's really hard to say w whether it's going to pay off i as someone who is personally pretty optimistic about the future of bitcoin i think that it's great that this country is learning how to use it early even though generally it's through the lens of this government issued wallet and i do understand why they have gone down that route because they want to have control over the wallet. They want to be able to issue funds to people in a way that is uh, under their control so that people aren't abusing that system. They want to have ways in which uh, they don't have to rely on a third party in order to seamlessly exchange US dollars for Bitcoin. Um, I, can, I can understand why they've done it, but the implementation of that, of that wallet does seem to have been problematic. Uh, on this trip, I haven't had a chance to get much of a sense of how that situation has improved. Um, I did have a very seamless lightning transaction yesterday, which is something that wasn't really possible with Chivo when I was here last uh, last December and November before that. So I hope things are improving. Um, but, you know, I do see money as a, as a competition, a zero-sum game whereby one money will tend to become dominant over time. And it doesn't make sense. If you're a Salvadorian and you're saving all of your money in a token that a foreign government is able to control and, uh, and spend into their own economy to the benefit of their citizens, then if you're someone that is holding that token as your savings vehicle, then you're gifting your labor to the monopoly issues of that currency every single year. And that system I don't think is sustainable. If It's only sustainable if it's the best option available to you. And arguably it was um, in the period that the, between which you know, the colon was, was abandoned and the US dollar was taken up. Arguably it was the best currency. But now we have Bitcoin, I do think there's a genuine, uh, genuinely better competitor that they can opt into. Yeah, except I would say not now. Uh, I, I look. I take you know I, where I, I lived in um, a part of El Salvador with my family for six weeks, and we used Bitcoin amongst our local community all the time, and we orange peeled a lot of people, the local papusa lady, people you know, and we did it basically using Strike Wallet um, because it's seamless, very easy. They get and. But the, the, the way it, the way Strike Wallet works is it's using the Lightning Network as payment rails, 
but the receiver and the sender can choose which currency they choose, you know, send or receive. And there are very instantaneous foreign exchange transactions at either end. In our case, we were spending Bitcoin and almost exclusively um, the local El Salvadorians were receiving dollars. And I know a lot of people that think that's bad. They shouldn't do that. That's not using Bitcoin. And I think that's completely wrong. I think it's perfect because you're, I don't recommend an El Salvadorian saving their money in Bitcoin right now. It's a ridiculous idea. You know, they could have been, they could have been saving eight months ago. They'd be down 80, 70% now, whatever it is, you know, there's a terrible vehicle for savings at certain time preferences, you know, mm. currently in this current monetization phase of, of Bitcoin, if you are on, if your time preference is low, it's a great savings technology, but in the short term, it's not. And, but I do believe that using the current, using the payment network is important. And I have a, another great example of it from back home because we've started orange pilling our local neighbors recently who are farmers. One particular neighbor of mine who has a herd of red ruby cows. And I was chatting to her about Bitcoin at a wedding the other day and said, look, because I know there's a big market for um, beef in the Bitcoin space. I said, look, I know there's a huge market for you. Uh, the only way you can tap into it, though, is by receiving Bitcoin. And she didn't know what Bitcoin was. And I told her to read Safe's book, obviously, like you do. And she's listening to it on an audio book. But what we ended up doing originally was setting her up with a system where she receives Bitcoin. And that Bitcoin instantly, in the same way that Strike does, um, gets transmitted, uh, transferred to pounds and she, she holds the pounds. Which makes total sense when you're running a business. And especially when you don't know what, even know what Bitcoin is. Um, that was about four weeks ago now, and she's already just over the moon with what's going on because Bitcoiners are buying her beef left, right, and center. What's more interesting, though, is within two or two and a half weeks of doing it for the first time, I got the first text from her, which was, okay, I get this thing now. How do I start buying Bitcoin myself? You know. And of course, I said to her, you don't need to buy it. You're getting paid in it. Just don't transfer all of it into pounds. The point is, though, that she didn't take very long to realize that that was something she wanted. And I think that is the process that everyone goes through, you know, especially if you're accepting Bitcoin because um, you're running a business. Um, and I think that's how it happens. So I think coming to El Salvador like we are, I urge people to spend their Bitcoin. You know, we were chatting to some people at lunch yesterday saying the same thing. It's like, even if you don't want to spend your Bitcoin, just spend it anyway and, and buy some back if you don't want your stack to go down, you know. But do spend it because the process of using the Bitcoin network um, is, is a very important part of the adoption of Bitcoin in my experience. I don't know what you think of that. Yeah, I, I think it's important that people learn how to use it. And your point about the time preference and the volatility is, is an important one because some people aren't in a position where they can save over a five-year time frame. They, they have immediate needs. They, they need to pay their suppliers next week and they, they can't afford to lose 20% 
you know, in a single day drawdown on their savings. So it's not necessarily the right thing for them to be using uh, something like Bitcoin for, for their savings. But there, I do think that it's, it's valuable for people to understand what it is and how it functions and that it can be used as an alternative payment system, particularly when it's cheaper as well. And the many Salvadorians don't have bank accounts. I think the last stats I saw were something like 70% don't have bank accounts. So they're not getting any interest on their dollars. They're having to physically hand over dollars if they want to pay someone for a service. And that's not particularly convenient. Um, so what Bitcoin does allow, even if they want to remain purely with their savings in dollars, is for people to take advantage of the uh, convenience of modern modern banking, uh, electronic payments, but do it in a way that doesn't require a bank account, um, but can uh, add to the add to the convenience of the transactions. And also, like your your friend in Wales, tap into uh, new markets uh, of people that actually you know tourists, for example, coming over here that, that want to spend uh, Bitcoin while they're in the country. Yeah, I mean it's a hugely important aspect. It's one I've really started to understand in the last year, especially because the Bitcoin, and I know a lot of people don't like this word, the Bitcoin community, I quite like that word. The Bitcoin community is hugely strong. It's like, it's one of the most inspiring, it's the most inspiring thing I've ever been involved in. And the people within it are so supportive and um inspiring and and critical as well then you know no one's sitting on their laurels they're, everyone's testing this their their ideas every day the testing the system making sure this is right um because um it's such an important thing and i love the fact that i can orange pill my neighbor and then put one tweet on twitter and she sells out mm. That's a really cool story. Exactly. It's amazing. And and she, and it couldn't have happened to a nicer person because she's the physical embodiment of proof of work as well. She's a hardworking farmer struggling in a way because they have to sell to large corporations who give her the, a bad price. She wants to correct, connect directly with mm. um, you know, her customers, which is much harder. In the, this is what Bitcoin is. It's a peer-to-peer -peer network. And, and all she has to do to be part of um, this movement is to offer a quality product in an honest and open way, which is the core tenant of Bitcoiners. Mm. And when they notice it, if we see someone doing that, we want to support them. Mm. It's such a beautiful thing, you know, and, and the market is there. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a beautiful place. And, and, you know, I hope, well, El Salvador has experienced that in the form of tourism. You know, people are literally coming here. I came here. I brought my whole family for six weeks, purely because the country adopted Bitcoin. There's no other reason to come here. In fact, we came here when the, the state of emergency was happening. Mm. You know, I, I'm pretty sure I, if, if any other country had a state of emergency, it wouldn't be on my list of places to travel with my family. Right? <laughs> um, you know, it's a, that's another story. I mean, the state of emergency was very much something that it didn't take too long to to dig under the surface and talk to actual people living here for them to tell you, this is what that means, this is what's happening. But anyway, um, for certain, we would have just gone, ah, let's go another time. 
But we came here specifically because of what's happening with Bitcoin here. And we will do the same anyway. We traveled to many places, Nashville in America, which specifically we went there because there were Bitcoiners there. Um, and, and more and more Bitcoiners are doing that, want to work with Bitcoiners. They want to, because if you're a Bitcoiner, and it's very hard to hide that fact, you can, you can, you can tell a Bitcoiner when you meet them because they believe in certain tenets, openness, honesty, you know, critical thinking, all these things. They're the people you want to do business with. They're the people you want to associate yourself with. Um, they are the antithesis to, let's say, the current system, the by decree system, the fiat system. And um, I hope, obviously, that uh, El Salvador benefits from that more and continuously. And I really do hope that people continue to use it and not, as someone pointed out to us the other day, rightly so, a lot of Bitcoiners are coming here getting off the plane in San Salvador, going straight to El Zonte, which is Bitcoin Beach, and making a few transactions and thinking everything's hunky-dory. But that's not adoption. That's a form of adoption. You know, real adoption for me is the pupusa lady mm. using Strike or my neighbor accepting Bitcoin. This mm. is the real use case. And and they there needs to be incentives there. In the case of my neighbor, it was a market and actually ease, you know, it is easy. And mm. same with the, the pupusa lady. It's the market. It's me coming to her. And it's also easy, very easy for me. I, I it's, it's, it's cheaper or the same as spending dollars because I have to buy the dollars anyway. Um, and it's much easier, as you know. If, if you've got to pay a bill, flashing a QR code up on a phone is the easiest way to pay that bill, mm. no matter where you are. So um, I hope I hope it, it all goes well here because I... I as most Bitcoiners that come here, we all have a pretty soft spot for the place. Mm. You always fall in love with a place like this. Uh, lovely people, really laid back, and Bitcoin's here. So, you know, what could be better? Um, well, I, I didn't want to steal all the all the <laughs> all the all the, the thunder there, but um, I get I get the sense we might be coming to the end here. So maybe I should um, ask you the final question. Uh, which is is something. This is the first iteration of this podcast, but I already decided that there would be one question I would ask everyone at the end of every podcast. So, as you're the first person, I'll ask you, and, and we'll see what transpires in the future. Um, um, so, here's my question to you, and it's a hypothetical question, but imagine it's real. You have been given a one-year sabbatical from your life whatever that means, during that sabbatical, your, all your expenses are covered. You don't have to worry about money. You don't have to worry about where you are. You just have to worry about what you're doing. What do you do in your year off? I've been really lucky in my life to have had the chance to travel a lot. As you mentioned, I spent 10 years in China. Maybe not classifying that all as traveling, but I moved and lived in four different cities there and then came back to UK um, and then spent time in like Mexico, El Salvador, Honduras, US. Uh, I've done a lot of traveling. Um, I'm now kind of in my mid thirties. And honestly, the thing that I would love to do now is, is kind of build a more settled life. Um, so my answer to that question wouldn't be something like I would go on a big adventure or start a new like business venture. Uh, it would be to kind of like 
establish a bit of a settled base somewhere and have a bit more of a uh, permanent place in which to you know do stuff like build a build a family things like that it's not something that I've I've had a chance to do up until this point in life but it's something that I'm quite excited about doing in the next few years so if I had a year off that would probably be what I'd I'd focus on what you build a family (laughs) you just go to work building a family or are you talking about (laughs) DIY house um, house family meeting the right person that kind of thing really so another way of saying that is you're working too much and it's getting in the way That, that I could easily you know transcribe that as that you need some free time to meet a nice lady and do some DIY on your house is what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> well that's a fair enough answer mate I, 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 I wish you good luck I hope you find the time to, to achieve that sabbatical uh, in a parallel universe um, and thanks for talking I, you know, I'm excited for what the rest of the conversations in this podcast will be like um, if they're anything like that we're in for a, a we're in for a good show so thanks for coming on all right thanks tim